All right, hey, turn in your Bibles to Psalm 7. It is great to be together this morning. I want to send a, uh, a shout out to the people way, way in the back. I see you. No sleeping, Rochelle and Josh, all right? Come on, full attention here. Hey, it is great to be here again. Um, we are continuing to make our way through the Psalms. Last week we were in Psalm 6. Today we'll be in Psalm 7. And I hope you're growing as we do this, growing in your understanding and appreciation of what God has for us in the Psalms. You know, I think there was an earlier point, perhaps in my Christian life, where I knew some of the biggies, right? Like Psalm 1, a great Psalm of wisdom. Psalm 23, God is our shepherd. Uh, Psalm 100, what a great praise psalm. And Psalm 119, the the psalm that extols the virtue and the value and the amazing worth of God's word. But then there were a number of them that were kind of in between that were just perhaps a little bit more difficult to understand, to grasp. Perhaps it wasn't quite sure what was going on, wasn't sure of how relevant they were to my life. You know, I know all scripture is absolutely profitable. It's inspired by God, profitable on many, many fronts. But, man, some of the stuff going on in the Psalms, I wasn't really sure about. How could I understand it? These guys are pretty poetic, and I'm not much of a poet. Um, and they seem to be perhaps more in touch with their emotions than, than I was, right? Let's just say my perspective was limited and incorrect, and I am thankful for what God has taught me. Every Psalm is a precious gift from God. And so I hope that you are coming with uh, expectancy today for what God is going to teach us as each psalm is a gift and we are able to learn together as a church. So super thankful for that. just want to read a quote from pastor and theologian Dale Davis. He writes this, speaking of the psalms. He says, the psalms tell us that trouble is normal, darkness is possible, reverses are likely, and ordinariness is celebrated. There is a herky-jerky pattern to believing life in the Psalms, covering the waterfront of conditions. The Psalms make clear that we do not get to some higher ground, a sort of experiential plateau where we mostly live above life's crud line. How many of you would love to live mostly above life's crud line? Yes, amen, right? Yeah. The Psalms tell us that we don't get to some higher ground, a sort of experiential plateau where we mostly live above life's crud line. Rather, there is only this ground where we stand, this frequently troubled, always changing, God-present ground. In short, the Psalms tell us that believing experience is kaleidoscope, and we shouldn't try to pretend it is any other way. So Dale Davis wrote a book on the first 12 Psalms, the, the The title of the book was The Way of the Righteous in the Muck of Life. The Way of the Righteous in the Muck of Life. Do you like that? Do you feel that that's sort of the way that life can feel sometimes? Well, the beautiful reality of each and every psalm is that they remind us that while we're in the muck of life, our God is a refuge. He hears our prayers. He keeps his promises and his perfect justice and righteousness will never be thwarted. So let's read Psalm 7. I'm going to read it, follow along. I'll be reading in the English Standard Version Bible. A Shigian of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjaminite. O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. 
Oh, Lord, my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me, for you have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. O let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. So here's where we're going today. First, we're going to look at the muck of David's life. We're going to look at Psalm 7 and understand the context for what he's singing. Second, we're going to look at two primary reasons why David sings. First, that God is a reliable refuge. And second, that God is a just judge. And finally, we're going to end with three reminders for living in a way that pleases God. All right, so let's dive in here. Straight into the muck. A Shigian of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjaminite. So let's get the question that's in all of your minds off the table right away. What's the question in all of your minds? What's a Shigian, right? All right. Well, Meg and Molly, my daughters, have volunteered to come up on stage here and perform the Shigian for you, so you don't have to wonder anymore. Let's give them a hand as they come up. That's a joke. I was actually half terrified that they might try to take me up on the offer, but thank you guys for just staying in your seats. Listen, uh, a shigian is probably a, uh, a, a term that Im implies irregular meter for, for a poem. Um, it kind of comes from a verb that means to wander, could connote sort of rambling. And David's raw, he's emotional, and sometimes when that's the way we're feeling, things don't, aren't fully formed in our head and they don't come out perfectly. Perhaps you've had that same experience sometimes where you've been hurt or you're stressed or you're emotional and you're trying to talk to somebody else and you're like, ah, it's really difficult to explain what's going on in my head and my heart. That's kind of the context here. And what is he, what's going on? Well, it tells us here. It says he sang this to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjaminite. From verses 3 and 4 in this psalm, it appears that David uh, was on the receiving end of slanderous accusations where somebody had accused him of doing things that he had not done. And this was really painful, very hurtful, very harmful. Now, on the one hand, we kind of go, all right, well, harmful words, slanderous words, yeah, that's kind of bad, but probably better than being in grave physical danger, as we have seen it in, in prior psalms. And yet, the flip side of that is, we all know how difficult and how painful and, and destructive words can be sometimes, right? Right? How do you disprove something that didn't happen? How do you win back your reputation? 
David is anointed as the next king of Israel, and his ability to be trusted as a leader is everything. And if people can't trust his character, how is he going to be an effective and godly leader? So this is really, really difficult for him. And he cries out to God. He says, save me, deliver me. Because these accusations, in verse 2, he says, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. He's saying the deepest part of me. It's like it's being torn apart. David's been a shepherd in the past. He knows what it's like to come across something that's been torn apart by a lion. It's not pretty. It's very, very destructive. But he believes he's innocent. So he's saying, here are these words that have been said about me. They're very harmful. I'm torn apart inside. But he's, look at verses 3 and 4. He says, oh, Lord, my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil, then in verse 5, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. He's invoking language that's like an oath. He's saying, if all these things are true and I am guilty of what I've been accused of, then you can take my life. I will stake my life on the fact that I am innocent. So that's the context. That's the muck of David's life in Psalm 7 in which he sings to the Lord. And before we kind of move on, I just want to pause here and say, isn't it kind of remarkable that in response to these very harmful, these very hateful, hurtful accusations that David chooses to respond with a song. Like, I I don't know where a song would rank on your list of responses in a situation like this, but I'm pretty sure it wouldn't be number one, and boy, would it really even be in the top ten. That's a good good challenge for all of us to think about how we respond to any number of hurtful situations or trials. Charles Spurgeon called Psalm 7 the song of the slandered saint. He says this, Even this sorest of evils may furnish occasion for a psalm. What a blessing would it be if we could turn even the most disastrous event into a theme for song and so turn the tables upon our great enemy? That's a good challenge to us all, right? All right, so that's the muck. Now, let's look at two reasons why David sings. Two reasons why David sings. Let's look at the very first line of the very first verse. O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge? The first reason that David sings is that the Lord is a reliable refuge. In you do I take refuge. The meaning of this, of taking refuge, is to flee to a specific place or stronghold. Taking refuge includes the idea of assigning trust or placing hope in or confiding in. In fact, the King James Version translates this verse as, O Lord, in you I put my trust. So think of putting trust and seeking refuge as synonymous. In the midst of his muck, David sings because God is a refuge. He flees to God in whom he trusts. Consider the way that he addresses God. O Lord, my God. O Lord, probably in most of your Bibles, Lord is all capitalized. That indicates that this is the name Yahweh, the personal God, the God who makes and keeps promises. The God who redeemed his people out of the land of Egypt. The one who gave them his laws. The one who has dwelt among them. Who gave them the land of promise. And the God who continued to show steadfast love to his people. But you also see David in verse 1 and 3. He says, O Lord, my God. God is not an impersonal God. He is not an abstract deity. The Lord is not some distant higher power. No, David confidently and unashamedly addresses God as the Lord, my God. 
He is the God who has not just made promises to the nation of Israel. He's made specific promises to David. He's the one who has anointed him and chosen him from the youngest son of his family to be the next king of Israel and the God who has protected him, strengthened him, and guided him each step of the way. So whether on the receiving end of destructive slander or whether being in grave physical danger, David turns to God. He does this because he knows the character of God. He's needed a refuge before, and he knows that God is trustworthy. The, the tense of that verb, to take refuge, is present perfect. And while that may seem technical to you, it's important because essentially what David is saying is, this is a settled issue in my mind. When I need a refuge, it's God. In the past, I have taken refuge. In the, it's the present now, and I am taking refuge. And in the future, it's a done deal. God is my reliable refuge. All right? So you got it. David sings because God is a reliable refuge, a place of safety and protection. But let's consider a few more verses from some of David's other psalms that help us to truly understand what it means to know God as refuge. Because it's about protection for sure. But it's so much more than that. We're not going to have the, the time to turn to all these verses. I'm going to read them. If you want to write them down, I'd encourage you to look at them later. Psalm 1830, this God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all who take refuge in him. Psalm 3119, oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you. Psalm 3422, the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Psalm 36, 7, how precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. And Psalm 34, 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. So as we think about running to God as a reliable refuge, it's not just about physical protection. It's not just about vindication from false accusations. Certainly it's that. But it's also knowing that his way is perfect. It's resting in his redemption. It's rejoicing in his steadfast love. It's tasting and seeing that the Lord is good and trusting in the fact that his goodness is abundant for those who take refuge in him. And that provides great reason to sing in the most difficult trial. Listen to Psalm 511. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them. That those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. So let me ask you today, do you know God? As, do you trust him? No, really. Do you know God as a reliable refuge? Do you trust him? Have you tasted that he is good? Have you settled this in your mind? Do you have complete confidence that he is trustworthy? Because we all have options. Taking refuge in the Bible is most often referred to or spoken about in reference to God. But can also be used of other people or things. I want to read to you a couple verses from Isaiah chapter 30, verses 1 and 2. God is rebuking his people and he says this, Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, but not mine, who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction. Listen to this. To take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. 
So do you say that you know God is a refuge? Do you say that you trust him, but in reality are looking to other people or other things as a refuge? Are you like the people of Israel in Isaiah 30 and take refuge or seek shelter in someone or something else rather than God? Again, as I said, we've got a lot of options for substitute refuges. And I've just, I just listed a small, uh, a small group here, and I'm sure there are others. I've just got a, a few options that we can turn to as substitute refuges. My political party, my bank or investment account, my spouse, my church, my steady employment, my well-behaved children, my comfy, relatively trouble-free life, my church ministry, my good health, my control over my domain, my bright future outlook, my way of life and freedoms in America, my social media feed, my dreams, my me time, my hobby, my secret sin. With what or whom do you fill in the blank? Oh, in you do I take refuge. Save me and deliver me. And if you suspect that you may have one or more substitute refuges, when the storm comes, when danger looms, when pain and hurt abounds, to what do you turn? In whom do you trust? Brothers and sisters, I don't say this lightly. I really believe that God's been working on all of us these past few months through a number of difficult and overlapping trials, all of which, all of which are under his sovereign authority. He's been exposing our true places of refuge, the things we truly trust in, and he's doing this because he's a merciful and patient father to all of his children. So if your substitute refuges have been revealed, thank God for his mercy in revealing it. Give him praise for his patience and love. Humbly repent and run once more to the only reliable refuge who will never fail, the Lord your God. All right, so that's the first point. The first reason that David sings is that God is a reliable refuge. The second reason that David sings is that God is a just judge. And if any of you are doing the math and thought, wow, that was like the first half of one verse, we are going to pick up the pace just a little bit, all right? Were, were you nervous a little bit? Be honest. You, <laughs> very good. All right, here we go. Uh, God is a just judge. Let's look at verse 6. David says three things. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me, for you have appointed a judgment. Do you hear the urgency in his voice? Three separate times, he's crying out to God, asking that God intervene and act on his behalf. Lord, I need you now. I've been wronged. Deliver justice. David is confident in addressing his plea to God. God is not only a safe place of protection against false accusations. He is a reliable refuge. And he's a shield that saves the upright in heart, as we see in verse 10. But Psalm 7 also provides four reasons to look to God and trust him completely as a just judge when we've been wronged or mistreated or when we look around us at a broken world and long for justice. And these truths form an amazing portrait of the judge who is able to and will deliver justice. So let's, let's look at truth number one. Truth number one is in verses six through eight. God has all authority. God has all authority. The scene here in verses six through eight is like a giant courtroom where God the judge is presiding over the assembly of the peoples. God is the judge of the earth and his authority is not limited in any way. 
David ends the psalm in verse 17 by referring to God as the Lord, the Most High. That's another name for God that, that means that he is king above all. He is completely supreme, ruling and reigning over everything in heaven and earth. Psalm 9.8 says, He will judge the world in righteousness. He will execute judgment for the peoples with equity. God has authority to judge all. Authority to judge all. But he also judges individuals. Listen to David. In verse 8, he says, Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness. In this matter, I'm innocent. Judge me according to my righteousness, to my integrity. And David can do this with confidence because of truth number two that we see in verse nine. So God is not only the one who has all authority and all power to judge all peoples, but God also has all knowledge. Verse nine, oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end and may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts. God possesses all authority and he possesses all knowledge. He tests our minds and our hearts. He knows our thoughts and he knows our hearts. When the Bible refers to the word heart, that really is everything that's the real you. It's everything that's not flesh. It's what's immaterial. It's our thoughts. It's our desires. It's our motivations. It's our affections. And God says, or the Bible says, he knows our minds and he knows our hearts. Jeremiah 17.10 says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. Hebrews 4.13, no creature is hidden from his sight. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So David can confidently appeal to God and so can we as the just judge because God possesses all authority and all knowledge. But that's not it. Truth number three. God is angry. As the just judge, God is angry. Verse 6, arise, O Lord, in your anger. Verse 11, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. And continuing, if a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. You know, friends, it can make us uncomfortable sometimes to talk about the anger or the wrath of God against sin. But for those who long for justice, this is really good news. This is really good news. If God were all-powerful and all-knowing but apathetic about dealing with evil, he could not be trusted to bring about justice. Let me say that again. If God were all-powerful and all-knowing but were apathetic about dealing with evil, he could not be trusted to bring about justice. We would condemn an earthly judge who winked at evil and failed to punish evildoers. How much more would a God who is not angry at evil be unjust? The message in Psalm 7 and the message of the Bible is clear. God is righteously angry against sin. He is angry at sinners who commit evil and injustice, and we can trust him completely to bring judgment. So that's the third truth. Number four is that God is righteous. So God is not capricious in his anger. We can trust him because he is righteous. Verse 9, O oh, righteous God. Verse 11, God is a righteous judge. And verse 17, I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness. In the Bible, righteousness is a synonym for justice, for God's justice. They're essentially, in the Old and the New Testament, essentially the same word, uh, same Two different ways to describe the same concept. 
Genesis 18.25, shall not the judge of the earth do what is just? In Deuteronomy 32.4, his work is perfect. All his ways are justice. Listen to what theologian Richard Strauss said. He said, when we say that God is just, we are saying that he always does what is right, what should be done, and that he does it consistently without partiality or prejudice. God's righteousness or justice is the natural expression of his holiness. And if he is infinitely pure, then he must be opposed to all sin. And that opposition to sin must be demonstrated in his treatment of his creatures. So in light of these four truths, God has all authority, all knowledge, he's angry at sin, and he is perfectly righteous. Do you trust him as a just judge? Do these truths shape your mind and your heart in a way to be able to trust him to deliver justice against evil in his way and in his time frame? If you find that you're responding to injustice against you personally, or perhaps in the world at large with fear, anxiety, impatience, or fleshly anger, ask God to give you a fresh vision of his character and strengthen your belief in his unwavering commitment to deliver justice. So David sang to God in the midst of his trial. In doing so, he ran to God because God is the reliable refuge. And he trusted God because he is the judge who will deliver justice. As we consider these truths, may God give us grace to sing to him, to run to him, and trust him in our muck. So let's conclude with three reminders. Three reminders. And as we talk about this first one, you may have felt a tension as we're talking about God as the just judge, the one who is perfectly righteous. Psalm 7 offers a ton of encouragement when we're the ones that have been wronged and are looking for justice. But these truths that we're affirming about God as a just judge are more than a little concerning when you know that you're not innocent. In fact, a God who possesses all authority and all knowledge, is angry at sin, and absolutely righteous, should be absolutely terrifying to one who is guilty. And let's be honest, we're all guilty before a perfectly righteous God. Verse 12 says, if a man doesn't repent, there's only judgment. But where is the hope for one who doesn't long for justice, but is desperate for mercy? And that's reminder number one. We're able to rejoice in our Savior. Rejoice in our Savior. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, he, God, is faithful and just. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And you say, wait a second. How can a perfectly just God forgive sin? How can he just forgive sin? And friends, that's the eternally glorious news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God is the all-powerful, all-knowing, angry at sin and righteous judge. And all of us are sinful. We are guilty before him. None of us can stand before God and declare our perfect innocence. He knows our hearts. He tests our minds. And our sin rightly separates us from a righteous God. But in his amazing love, God sent his son Jesus to earth to be our rescuer. 
Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrated or he showed his love to us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were sinners, while we were guilty, while God's bent and ready bow was rightly aimed at us, Christ died for us. Jesus bore the righteous wrath of God against sin in our place. He died in our place. He bore the wrath of God that we deserved. And then he rose again on the third day, forever proving that he has all power over sin and death. Friends, there's mercy for sin. There's forgiveness for sinners. The just judge is eager to exchange your sin for the righteousness of his son, Jesus. Bible says that he is slow to anger and abounding in love. He is patient, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. This amazing exchange, our sin for his righteousness, is available by grace through faith to those who repent, who turn from their sin and self-righteousness and trust completely in Jesus, the Savior. Man, that's cause for great rejoicing. Jesus is not only a refuge from trial. He is a refuge from the righteous wrath of God. Let's rejoice in that. And let's be earnest in telling others, friends, neighbors, colleagues, about the redemption that is available, the forgiveness that is available to them by grace through faith, by repenting and believing. And friends, if you're here listening online, if you've never repented, Turn from your sin and trust in Christ. I implore you to do it today. This invitation comes with a warning. Every sin will be punished. The righteous wrath of God demands it. Trust Jesus as your refuge. Trust Jesus as your savior. Without him, you face the wrath of God on your own. So reminder number one, rejoice in your savior. Reminder number two, run to your refuge. Have you been wounded by someone else's harmful words? Are you concerned by justice around you, struggling with any number of other myriad trials? Perhaps you're fearful, anxious, hurting, overwhelmed, sad, lonely, depressed, disoriented. Forsake your substitute refuges and run to the only reliable refuge. Taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man or woman who takes refuge in him. And how do we do that practically? Just quickly, we got to know God and his word. We have to know God's character. If we don't know him and know him as trustworthy, we're never going to turn to him. We're going to keep turning back to our substitute refuges. Saturate your mind with the truth of God's word, his character, his promises. Recall his track record of steadfast love to you. Watch your other inputs that might take you away or in the opposite direction so that you are consistently and in a fixed way in your mind, running to your refuge. And third, trust in your judge. Psalm 7 ends without a tidy resolution. It's not like a good sitcom. Justice has not yet been served. David's not living in the happily ever after. And that should encourage us because that sounds a lot like our lives. There's not always tidy resolutions. Sometimes God acts quickly. Sometimes he intervenes and solves the problems. Sometimes justice is served immediately or shortly thereafter. But not always and perhaps not often. Still, David ends this psalm with a resolve to praise the Lord. Not because everything is all better, but because the Lord is righteous. All he does is right. And it's important to reminder to us 
that we should pray, that we should call upon God to act, that we should live with integrity, and we should leave room for God to do the work that he's promised to do. And while we wait, let's follow the example of Jesus and entrust ourselves to the one who always judges justly. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the reminder that you have given us in Psalm 7. Thank you for the various experiences of David and the other authors that give us encouragement. We're reminded that everything that's written has been written so that we may have hope. And so, Father, increase our faith. Increase our desire to run to you. Help us to know you as the reliable refuge. Help us to trust you as the just judge. That is our desire, that we would do so in each and every circumstance. In so doing, that we may live for your glory and that our actions and our words may display to a watching world that you are reliable, that you are absolutely trustworthy. In Jesus' name, amen.